morning. So I don't know if your alarms didn't go off or your alarms did go off, but welcome to the second service. It was a struggle this morning just to get up and forgot that we lost one hour. So this morning, uh, we just read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Go through some statistics this morning. I think it's acting up again. So this morning, we're going to go through some statistics. By the way, I'm not a stat professor. I don't believe in stats. and I, I was reading a book, um, and some statistics came up. And I read the statistics, stats that we probably have heard one time or another. But as I just read them, I just want you to just pay attention to the numbers and to the message inside of those statistics. Ron Sly- Slider, in his book, The Scandal of Evangelical Conscience in 2005, found the following stats. Church members divorce their spouse as often as their secular neighbors. Church members beat their wives as often as their neighbors. Why evangelicals are most likely people to object to neighbors of another race. And we saw the presidential election, and we saw some of these things just rising up that gives some truth to these facts. Of the higher commitment, evangelicals, a rapidly growing number of young people, think that cohabitation is acceptable prior to marriage. And this Thursday, there was another statistic that just came up and said only 2% of Americans who are parents of preteen actually have a biblical worldview. Which Barnes says puts the children at a spiritual disadvantage. It is particularly shocking given that 67% of parents of preteens self-identify as Christians. It goes on to say, sadly, the research confirms that the very few parents even have the worldview development on their children on their radar. Shockingly, few parents intentionally speak to their children about beliefs and behavior based upon a biblical worldview. Perhaps the most powerful worldview lesson parents provide through their own behavior, yet our study consistently indicates that parents' choice generally do not reflect biblical principles or an intentional Christian approach to life. When I read the numbers, I don't know what was your reaction to them. Confront them, deny them, argue over them. But one of the things that we should do as we heard the statistics and as we know them really well, and some of us have experienced some of those things, where are the alarm fires? Where is the sounding alarm from pastors, from leaders, from the body of Christ screaming out loud, how can it be that we're living a similar life to those that don't know Jesus. How is it there is no contrast between us and them? We should be praying. We should be fasting. 
Where is the sense of urgency knowing that you and I are living a similar life to those that denied Jesus? And I was reading this. It brought several questions to my mind. Why is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, is not living a contrast life? Why is it there is no distinction between us and the world? We're going to be using our Bibles today. There's Bibles to your left and to your right. As a good college professor, you're going to be taking notes. You're going to be underlining. You're going to be highlighting. You're going to be using your instruments, which is the Bible. If you don't have it, they're on left and right of you. So take it out. And we're going to start reading on Matthew 5, 13 through 14. Matthew 5, 13 and 14 from the beginning, God told us already that this was going to happen. The statistics should not surprise us. In Matthew 5, 13 and 14, it reads the following way. You are the soul of the earth. But if soul has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt and light. God has called us to be salt and light. But based on statistics, we have lost our saltiness, and we're no longer riding shiny on the hill. Now, the verse says that we should be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So does that mean the gospel is dead in 2022? Does that mean that somehow along generations, the gospel has lost its power? Or could it be that the gospel is dead in us? Either or or. Can't be both. So either the gospel is dead or the gospel is dead in us. This morning, we have to make a decision. We have to begin to assess and analyze and examine our lives at the light of the scripture. And determine why is it that we're not living this contrast life. Where have we gone astray? Where have we lost our sense of direction? And for that, we're going to be using our Bibles today. And we're going to go to 1 Peter 4, 6. We're going to stay here. Have you ever taken a test where the professor gives you the answers to the test? I see some smiles. I'm that kind of professor. I'm the professor that says, this will be on the test. Underline it. If you're repeated multiple times, it's because it's important. I even give you a study guide. I give you the master to the test. Yet people still fail the test. And I always joke, people are allergic to A's in my class. I don't know why. But let's read 1 Peter 4, 6. So here is the focus of this message today. I'm giving you the focus. I'm giving you the answer. We're going to sit there for a couple of minutes and then completely forget and then take a test again and then forget the answer. Right? 1 Peter 4, 6. I want you to read it with me. I want you to lean in the verse. I want you to pay attention to the words that are being written. 
I want you to do it by reading aloud with me. It's on the screen. If not, you can use your Bibles. Read it with me. It says, for this, are we awake? For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Repetition. Reading it once, you already forgot. Let's do it again. Now, turn to your neighbor, if you have one next to you, right, and read it to them, right? Read it to them. Here we go. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, the last part. So when I preach and when I read verses, something always jumps up. Some last time that I preached was be holy because I'm holy. And I just stuck there. And when I read this, I got stuck on verse 6. That might live in the spirit the way God does. That's the answer. Live in the spirit. Live in the spirit. But for us, it's almost like algebra or calculus. Foreign language doesn't make any sense. What does it mean to live by the Spirit? I'm very simple when I preach. I try to give you the answers. I'm not giving you a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to give you the answers. I'm going to give you the focus. That way you can go back and look at through the Scripture. You can pray. You can analyze. You can ask for forgiveness. Repent. Be obedient to his word. Now, it's something interesting here. Both Paul and Peter write the same way, using the same contrast. Once again, let's use our Bibles, and we're going to go to Galatians 5, 16 to 24. Galatians 16 to 24. It might be stuck in your Bible somewhere in there, right? If you have your phone, it's a lot easier because you can scroll down. We're going to do this little exercise like we're in class, okay? There's repetition. I want you to highlight every time the Spirit shows up. And it's very interesting how the writers of the Bible use this technique. I was talking to Willis before, right? Sometimes we read the Bible and we don't know what we're reading. Repetition is key. If the author repeats the theme over and over and over again, guess what? You're going to be tested on it. It's important. Are we ready? So I'm going to go fairly fast with this. It says Galatians 5, 16 to 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Look at the verb. Walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the what? The Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Contrasts. Differences. So when I live like the world, there is no contrast. There is no difference. I am like them because I'm not living, walking in the spirit. You are not under the law. Now, the work of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealous, fits of anger, rivalries, dimensions, 
dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see the contrast? Living by the flesh, living in sin, and here comes the opposite. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified their flesh with his passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So look at the adjectives, look at the verbs, look at the description in terms of the Spirit. Walk against, led, fruit of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, step with the Spirit. And that brings us back to 1 Peter 4, 6. You see the parallels? Now, but why? Why is Peter and Paul telling us, encouraging us to do so? Because he knew that we're not living contrast lives. He knew that we're sinful. He knew that there will be a day when the world will see us and there will be no contrast. So we're going to take a quiz this morning. I know it's a pub quiz. Don't worry. You'll be okay. So we're going to take a quiz this morning, and I want you to answer the following questions. Yes or no? Yes or no? And the question is, am I, are you as a Christian, arming yourself with the same attitude of suffering in Christ? You don't have to, you don't have to tell me the answer. Right? Yes or no? Am I altering my life towards God's will? Yes or no? And once again, I'm not making this up. This is literally 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. So if you read them, you'll find them. And to make it easier to remember, because I know college students need help remembering things. There's so much information. Look at all the A's. Okay? So, are you arming yourself? Do you have the same attitude as Christ? Are you altering your life towards the will of God? And you already heard Eric. He didn't want to do it, but he allowed, he was obedient to the will of God. Are you or am I creating amazement in the world? Verse number three. Verse number four. Am I unleashing abuse by the world as I shock the world in obedience? So three and four are, hip, are tied to the hip. Number five. Am I aware that I will have to give an account for my deeds and my actions in this world? That I will be judged by them? Yes or no? How are we doing so far? Are we passing? Okay. What about these? Am I allowing to announce a genuine gospel? Am I preaching Am I speaking? Am I showing a genuine gospel? Am I asking effectively? 
Am I praying correctly? Or there are things in my life that will create obstacles that my prayer would not be answered. Am I showing the real meaning of agape love? This is God's love. Pure, genuine, unblemished love. Am I assisting my neighbors without grumbling? And the last A, am I permitting us to be agents of change in our communities? How do we do? Do we pass, barely pass, or do we fail? And we have to repeat the class again. Now, we can't do this by ourselves. And my intent here is not for you to feel guilty. It's not for you to say, mea culpa, mea culpa, right? But it's for you to realize that we need Christ. That we need to run to the cross. What we're going to do now is take those ten and go deeper in three of them or four of them this evening or this afternoon with the time that we have. So let's take the first one. Am I arming myself with the same attitude of suffering as Christ? Now, pay attention to this because this necessarily goes against what we've been taught since children. We have been taught from children or childhood to be safe, correct? To have guarantees in life and to have securities. As I travel with college students around the world, I remember my first trip going to Bangladesh with uh, a young girl that had never traveled. She didn't have a valid passport. She had never gotten on a plane. And this young girl is going across the world with me. And I remember having conversations with the parents. Asking me if her child is going to be okay. What guarantees do I provide that her child is going to come back? And as a father, I say the following things. I can only guarantee that she will make it home. Either in heaven or on earth, she will make it home. Those are not comforting words, correct? Because you want your child to come back no matter how special that child is. But we live in a world that is asking us to be comfortable, to be safe, not to take steps or risks. But we're doing this for the faith, for the gospel. And he's telling on his word in 1 Peter, arm yourself. Train your mind and your body for suffering. And what do we do? The opposite. We train our mind and our body not to suffer. Not to go to places where we are going to suffer. We have trained ourselves, and your parents have done an excellent job protecting you, correct? And I always tell my wife, do not ever use our kids as an excuse for us not to go on mission trips. Because God can take them away really easily. So as parents, we're constantly looking for protection, right? Security. As you get older, guess what? It doesn't get better. It gets worse. You begin to look at your 401ks and your bitcoins and your shoe collection. In my case, soccer jerseys, right? But nevertheless, okay? 
you begin to figure out, am I okay for the future? Do we have all the securities to make it an old age? I have a mortgage. I have car payments. I have kids to put in college. So I cannot put myself at risk, yet alone my family. So we're arming ourselves with the same attitude as Christ in suffering. The second one that I want to dive in a little bit more, and I was going to read it, there's certain ones that just jumped at me. And the second one that jumped at me was, are we creating amazement in the world? If you go with me in 1 Peter, verse number 3, look what it says. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles wants to do, leaving, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse number 4. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they, ma- they malign you. So verse number three and four, they're actually tied together. Okay. Let me go back. Okay. So we begin to see that verse three and four, they're tied together. We begin to notice that as I shock the world, as I begin to take steps of obedience, and I decide to live a conscious life, the world is going to look at me and say, Something is up with this person. And guess what you're doing? You're inviting abuse. You're inviting harassment. You're inviting judgment. Let me go back again. As I begin to do the opposite of what the world does, when I don't participate, when I don't join them, when I decide to live a different, separate, holy life, the world response is not by clapping my decision. It's by what? Ridicule me. Pointing the finger at me. Judging me. Abusing me. And I have said, we are in a situation where Christians are going to be the minority in this country. Our children are the minority today in schools. Our children are the minority in colleges today. So when you stand up and you say, this is the biblical view on gay marriage. When you say, this is the biblical view on this or that. What are you doing? You're inviting what? Harassment. You're inviting discrimination. And in some cases, you might lose your job. But have you prepared your mind for that? Have you prepared yourself to be abused? Now, think for one second. If Peter and Paul were writing the letter of the Well Community Church, what would it read like? What would be the sinful aspects in our life that will make it on the pages of the Bible. Well, for Peter, the list that made it to the pages were sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, 
drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What would have made the list in this church? Or would it have gone to the step to say, the world is shocked by the members of the well-community church because they're living a contrast life. And they're welcoming ridicule, and they're welcoming abuse. Many of the letters of Paul to the churches write about this contrast between sin and what you're doing versus what you should be doing. And in 1 Corinthians 5.1, look what it reads. I can hardly believe the reports about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that not even the pagans do, you guys do. I am told that it's a person, a member inside of your church that is living in sin with his stepmother. And pay attention to the response by Paul to the church and to the leaders and to the pastors of Corinthians. You are so proud of yourselves. But you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. This is shocking. Imagine doing that today. Where the church responds in mourning and sorrow and shame because of the sin of the church members. Shock. Ridicule. Harassment. Imagine what Facebook will say about us, right? Or Twitter or Instagram. Now, the last one that I want to pay attention to today are we agents of change in the world? Now, verse number 10, 1 Peter 4, reads the following way As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Now, you might say, because we have a lot of college students here, you know, you're like, I haven't, rich, I haven't become rich. My cryptocurrency is crashing, right? The bitcoins and the litecoins of the world is completely on the ground. But if and when it goes up, then I will have gifts. But what's interesting about gifts is that God provides us with a whole bunch of gifts. Intellectual gifts. Emotional gifts, but more importantly, he provides us with spiritual gifts. Many years ago, as I was, my dad was pastoring the church that I eventually took over. I remember very vividly, I used to serve in the worship team. Not good, don't ask me to play the guitar. I know Bobby's dying to see me play. It won't happen. I, don't, I can't sing anymore. It has been seven years, so I lost the range. All right, so I sing in G all the songs, okay, so there's no range no more. Um, and I remember sitting in the, in the pews, and I remember that I was not necessarily serving to the best of my abilities, to the gift that God has given me. I remember very clearly that there was a lack of Sunday school teachers. I have a gift of teaching. I know that. That is my spiritual gift. Yeah. I know that I'm a teacher. I know I'm a good teacher. But I was not serving in the church. 
And I remember sitting in that pew and saying, how is it that I can teach and win awards for my teaching but not serve God at his house? And I felt compelled. And I remember saying, you know, I'll start teaching. I remember teaching the preteens, the youth, and eventually teaching Sunday school. But many of us have gifts that we hold in our back pockets that we don't want to put it to the use of the Lord or our neighbors or our community. What is it that you're holding back? And as you get older, once again, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder. And I always tell the college kids that I spend time with, right now is the best time of your life. Don't wait until you have a job. Don't wait until you get married, and don't wait until you have your kids to have and to begin to serve God. It doesn't get any easier. This is the best time. So what is the gift you're holding back? Is it your 401K? Is it your possessions? Is it your house? Is it your job? Is it your children? What are the things that you're not using for the community? For your church, to be agents of change in your neighborhoods, in your community, in your school, in your household. What are the things that are holding you back from saying, I have a gift, but I'm not using it to glorify God? And we all have done this at one time or another. We have been selfish, we have been spoiled children, I would say, to a point. Where we don't want to give what God has given us. Now, as the older you get, don't touch my pocket. Don't touch my security. Don't touch my 401k. It's mine. I have earned it. And we begin to see where is the contrast. What happens? And at the end of the day, we begin to notice that my words are not changing the world. They're not even changing my household or my children or my community or my church because something is missing. And remember the answer to this, 1 Peter 4, 6? Because we're not living in the Spirit. So to conclude, I want you to open up your Bibles again or read it. And towards the end of this chapter 4, Peter, once again, begins to use very powerful words. And then he almost concludes, but it's almost like a preacher that never concludes and says, I'm almost done, but I'm, you know. And he will go on on chapter 5 again and restart again the motors, okay. But look what he says on verse number 11, part 1. It says, open up my Bible. Whoever speaks. As one who speaks oracle of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That's the first part. So let's stop right here for one second. So when I go out of the world, when I go out through those doors tomorrow or today and I go to school and I go to work and I spend time with my family, I speak to neighbors and I begin to just engage with the community around me, there's two things that should be clear. Number one, when I speak, I'm not speaking because of me. I'm speaking God's words. 
Think about this for a second. So when you meet someone, quote-unquote, randomly in the grocery store, at, the, uh, at a school or a class or the MBA or the bank, and God puts someone, you have an opportunity to speak life to them. You have an opportunity to use God's word to impact their lives. Why? Because we are his children and the spirit of God lives in us through us for his words might be manifested to others. So if your words don't have any power, go back to the quiz. Now, when I go and serve, what it says, when I go out into the community and I step out, I'm not doing it for my strength. I'm not doing it because of me. I'm doing it through what? God's strength. So you ever wonder why the church cannot impactful or be impactful in their community? It's because they're doing it in their own strength. I remember in a community in El Salvador where gangs ruled that community. And I remember talking to the pastor. And I remember feeling convicted that there needs to be a church in this community of 3,500 people where MS-13 has a stronghold. And no one can go in. Unless you have the authority and the blessing of the gang. And I remember asking, where is the church inside of this community? Because we will go in and serve constantly. But on Sunday, the church will retreat back to their fortresses and praise our God. But these people could not leave the community because if they cross and try to go to the church where we're sponsoring this, they would have been shot because they had to go to the opposite gang. And I remember asking the pastor directly and saying, why is it that your church is not planting a church in this place? And he said, we have to ask the denomination to ask permission. And I'm like, no. When there is a need, the church should impact it immediately. We should be able to just say, look, if a pastor is needed, one of our members is going to go and live there. But remember, we want comfort and we want security. So we're not shocking the world. And therefore, we're not inviting abuse or harassment. So when I speak, I speak oracles of God. And when I serve, I serve in the strength of God. But for what purpose? Why do we do all of this? And this is the conclusion at the end of verse number 11. In order that everything I say and everything that I do, I don't do it for my glory, for my gratification. I do it for what? Read it with me. In order that in everything, God, what? May be glorified. Through whom? Jesus Christ. So what I do, what I say, how I serve how I give my gifts is not because I want to be glorified. I want Jesus Christ to be glorified. Amen? Woo! Either spring forward is kicking in or we lost it somewhere. Okay? So when I go to college, when I go to work, when I speak, when I serve, I'm not doing it because of me. I'm doing it to glorify him in everything that I do. But furthermore, look what he says. 
to him belongs the what? The glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever again. So what we do in this earth has eternal ramifications. What we do right now will travel through time, echoing through generations. And some of you here are second generation Christians, third generation Christians. Someone took the decision years ago to say, I belong to Jesus. My grandma, my great-grandparents, my great-grandparents were the first Christians in El Salvador. They decided that has echoed through generations, impacting not just here, but eternally. And think about that decision that you have made. Think about that decision and the ramifications you're going to have for generations to come. That when you speak, you speak oracle of God and you serve in the strength of God. I want you to pray this morning before we leave and before we have the communion. And just go back to 1 Peter 4, 6. Am I living in the Spirit? Am I glorifying Him? Am I giving Him the honor? And it might be a resounding yes. It might be a resounding no. I'll invite Pastor Matt to give the communion. You know, when we look at that list and we're either struck with a resounding yes or no, the gospel is the answer in both cases. Remember verse 6. Verse 6 says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So when we see this reality that we're to live a contrasting life, we might say, ah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. We might look at it and say, ah, I'm not doing that. We're crushed by guilt. And the gospel says, no. If you find yourself not in contrast to the world, if you find yourself stuck uh, not living the way you want to, would you remember there's, there's one who did? That the righteous one lived in your place. The one who lived a very contrasting life, a holy life, a perfect life, already lived in your place. And by his death and in his resurrection, we, we now are forgiven and, and have newness of life to walk in the power of the Spirit in the same kind of way he lived in contrast to the world. So it's not, oh, I'm going to try harder and do better. But it's, man, he has tried harder. He has done better. And now in response, I give every aspect of my life to him. So this morning, if you're in Christ, would you, would you be refreshed by the good news of the gospel and live a bold obedience in response to who Jesus is and what he's done? And if you're not in Christ this morning, don't take communion, but rather look at that list, look at that quiz and, and be honest with it. Say, I'm not good enough. I have not lived up to the standard. And cling to Christ who is your Savior. Because he loves you and he wants you. Let's take and eat together. And then let's live in the power of the Spirit, a contrasting life in the very steps of Christ. Let's take and eat together.